Good morning and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Old Dragoon. It is a holiday morning. Today is Memorial Day 2018. The wife and kids are visiting family, so I get to be solo. Woke up at regular work time this morning because that's what your body does when you're a parent. So I decided to go for my walk before it gets too far north of 80 degrees. It's going to get up to 105 here in sunny central Texas. Had some record temperatures recently. So a little bit about me and my gaming background. I was, uh, for the most part, born and raised here in Texas. Uh, I was born in Longview, a little city in East Texas that is now home to a uh, old school gaming convention called the Long Con, run by a really neat dude named Eddie Bartlett, whom I met at North Texas RPG Con. After Longview, I spent some time in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then Humble, just outside Houston, which is home to Etten Games. Gotta give them a shout out. Until recently, they had one of the greatest out-of-print RPG sections I had ever seen. Now, they still have all that stuff. It's just not on shelves in the brick-and-mortar store. But if you contact them, good lord, tons and tons of amazing out-of-print stuff and some things that I've never seen on a game store shelf in the first place. For instance, um, for instance, I picked up some copies from Etten of the remastered Star Frontiers rules that have been floating around the web for about a decade now from the folks that brought us Star Frontiersman magazine. I've always seen them in PDF, never seen hard copies. Now I have the hard copies, and they're pretty nice. So, Humble, Etten Games. Um, from there, came to Round Rock, Texas, and that's pretty much where I've been the rest of my life, up until, um, up until fifth grade. Spent a year in Temple Terrace, Florida, within walking distance of Bush Gardens, and then moved back to Texas, and here's where I've been. So, I have uh, spent most of my life, actually all of it, in southern states. And one would think, the kind of crippling heat we get here, that I'd be used to it. Well, used to and enjoy are two different things. And I keep telling myself that when I retire, I'm going to move up to Lake Geneva where it all began and enjoy the much cooler temperatures year-round. I even have Lake Geneva set as a location on my phone's weather app so that I can see how much cooler and nicer it is there than it is here. Now, uh, thanks to Texas teacher retirement and many other complications, I will probably never get to move there. I just want to make the traditional pilgrimage from GaryCon at some point. As an aside, Lake Geneva was almost as warm as Central Texas yesterday, according to the app. Which is a bit confusing, but okay. The world works in mysterious ways. So, um, my first experience with RPGs and why I am into this crazy hobby. Well, that one year that I spent in Temple Terrace, Florida, was kind of an interesting experience. Um, any of you that moved as a kid can probably identify with being the new kid, not knowing anybody, you know, and it wasn't like visiting your old friends is just a short drive away, it's halfway across the continent. So I had to pick up a bunch of new friends and a bunch of new interests. Well, it was 1985. And upon arrival, we stayed with an aunt for a little while before we got our own apartment. And two of the very first things that I discovered that I had not seen in Texas were Robotech, 
and Transor Z, both of which blew my mind. Actually, I had picked up on Transor Z staying with my grandparents in uh, Lake Charles, but Robotech was something brand new and it would factor heavily into my RPG interests once they got started. Robotech's a television series that was made from three anime series from Japan, Super Dimension Fortress Macross, Super Dimension Cavalry Southern Cross, and Genesis Climber Mospita. The American syndication market required more episodes than Macross alone had, and so a guy, love him or hate him, named Carl Maycheck, took the three series because they were visually similar in animation style and wove them together into one long narrative. There's a little bit of a confusing narrative sometimes, a little bit of a disjointed one in others, but it was something I'd never seen. You know, at 10 years of age, here was a show that wasn't wrapping everything up in 22 minutes like G.I. Joe or Transformers or Thundercats. I mean, let's put it this way. My favorite episodes of G.I. Joe were always the multi-parters. I am a huge fan to this day of the Mass Device series, the original A Real American Hero miniseries. Still re-watch that with my kids more than we re-watch any other part of the series. And part of that because it was, it was, a, it was a longer narrative. In Robotech, things changed. There wasn't a magic reset button. I'm looking at you, Star Trek Voyager. Um, the narrative went on. Characters died. I remember the morning that uh, one of the main characters was killed. Went to school. And everybody was terribly depressed. I mean, it was... It was... Uh, something that affected all of us because we all watched the show. The only thing that gut-punched us more than that that year was when the Challenger exploded. So, uh, it was a big deal for kids. The narrative, the story. And so that would come back later, once I started role-playing, and, and really give me an idea of what I wanted to do with the hobby. So I got my first glimpse of D&D books when I lived in Temple Terrace. My friends and I were still playing with G.I. Joes and Star Wars figures and Transformers and Mask was huge and I will probably cover the Mask game that I ran using Top Secret SI in the early 90s at some point in the future but we were heavily into those kind of toys and something that was interesting is the seeds of role playing had already been planted by some of those very toys. If you get a chance to check out the documentary, The Toys That Made Us, on Netflix, you can see some pretty cool stuff about all of these toy lines. And one of the things that was shown in the episode about Transformers, but not really talked about, was how the Transformers came with statistics. Um, folks my age might remember that the Transformers came with these cards on the back that uh, were later kind of dumbed down and now apparently in current Transformers they're inside the package on a baseball card sized card but it was sort of a double gimmick first you had a bio and personality for the character in the box and I remember that actually factoring in to how I played with those characters my first Transformer was Windcharger and I remember Windcharger's card talking about his ability to manipulate magnetic fields. And that was pretty neat. I mean, that's basically a superpower. And yeah, we'll talk about what I did with Marvel superheroes and Transformers at a later date. Um, but also, you had stats. You had strength. You had endurance. You had skill. You had speed. You had firepower. Which, they've changed to Fire Blast a number of years ago because firepower is, you know whatever um but anyway part of that gimmick was the personalities the other part was the stats and the stats were hidden in a mess of reddish ink 
that if you placed a little red filter that came with the box transformers on it, you would be able to read the stats. So it was like they were a secret. So that was pretty neat. But the idea that the transformers had stats had awakened in a lot of us kids the whole idea that you could compare these stats and come up with an idea of what the characters were capable of. You could put them next to each other and figure it out. Well, Jazz's rank is higher than Hound, so Jazz is in charge in this situation. Or what happens when Megatron's firepower is so much higher than Bumblebee's endurance? So the concept behind an RPG was already bubbling around in our heads just from the toys we played with. And uh, the other toy line that affected me and helped me adapt to RPGs as quickly as it was, was Wheeled Warriors. A lot of people don't remember this one, but there was a great cartoon series, um, as well as some really cool toys. The Wheeled Warriors toys gimmick, because every toy in the 80s had to have a gimmick if it did not have a cartoon show, although many had both. The gimmick of the Wheeled Warriors toys was the ability to stack and attack, to pull the pieces off of these vehicles and swap them around to the other vehicles. If the cartoon is to be believed, you could actually hot swap them during battle. But if you read the instructions that came with the Wheeled Warriors toys, there weren't strict RPG stats, but there were things like saying, these tires increase traction, but they're not great for speed. These tires are amazing for speed, not so great for traction. So the idea of customizing the vehicles to be able to do different things, that also really planted the seeds for some of my RPG interests later. Most especially Battletech and Mechton. Because, oh, and Car Wars. How many of us gearheads spent hours and hours and hours building the ultimate car for car wars. I have a story that I'll talk about later involving an armored beer refrigerator. And the sad part is I grew up to not even like beer. Anyway. Boy, a Moscow mule would be nice. Anyway, so in Florida, I was soaking up these toy lines that were sort of laying the groundwork for RPGs. And that's when my friend Eric Ryan and I noticed his older brother's stack of AD&D books. Now, this is where I wonder if my eyewitness memory is not a tiny bit flawed. Because I could swear that at some point during the year, fall of 85 to uh, summer of 86 when we moved back to Texas, that in that stack of AD&D stuff, I saw one of those cool overhead transparency hex sheets that you laid down over maps to get measurements. To my knowledge, I think that was introduced with the Forgotten Realms box set in 87. But somehow I remember seeing one then. In any case, his brother had these big, beautiful hardcover books that said Advanced Dungeons and Dragons across them. These were the Easley artwork versions. And uh, I was immediately interested in flipping them open and seeing what was in them. Of course, I had heard about D&D through a couple of venues. One being the awesome Saturday morning cartoon, which I own on DVD about three times over and also watch with my kids. My daughter Kaylee loves it so much, she had her grandmother sew her a cape like the one Sheila wears. And for a few months, we had to pretend we couldn't see Kaylee when she would skulk around the house with her hood up. So there was the D&D cartoon and LJN's line of advanced Dungeons and Dragons action figures. So 
we were familiar with Strongheart and Warduke and Paralay and uh, all these different characters. Elkhorn. So, um, I was aware of the brand. I was also aware that there were some folks out there, adult types, that did not approve of D&D. Couldn't really figure out why. I guess I just didn't pay attention to that sort of thing at such a young age. So, I was already primed for it, and we started flipping through the books, and weren't entirely confused, but even as an adult, when it takes six to eight pages to explain exactly how the by-the-book, as-written initiative rules work for AD&D, that might be a little too much for a ten-year-old who had never played a role-playing game. We knew there was something cool there. Reading the monster descriptions was particularly captivating. But Eric's older brother didn't want his ten-year-old brother and his friends jumping in and ruining their games. I'm sure it was a bit like Elliot at the beginning of E.T., wanting to get in on the high school kids' games and being told that you can't join any universe in the middle. So we never got to play. We did spend a lot of time flipping through those books where they were left unguarded. So, during that year in Temple Terrace, my mom was looking for a fresh start. She and my dad had separated when I was seven. And so we moved to Florida for kind of a change of venue. Well, during that time, as luck would have it, we didn't have enough room to carry all our stuff. So my mom's friend Kathy said, well, you know, I work for this toy store and there's this really cool truck driver and he makes the run out to Florida sometimes. So why don't we see if we can put the rest of your stuff on his truck and he can bring it to you. Well, that truck driver became my stepdad, Mike. And uh, we didn't really get along all that well while I was a kid, but I can't imagine life without him now. That's a completely different story. Not having to do with gaming, with the exception of how he was always really amused by my friends and I being over at our house, rolling up characters all the time, and, you know, spending more time on characters than playing. He understood the game well enough to realize that we should probably get some story going on there. But anyway, so once they got together, they decided, let's move back to Texas. So I only spent a year in Temple Terrace. But that was the year where I realized there was this thing called Dungeons and & Dragons, and I definitely wanted in. So we moved back to Texas, summer of 1986. This is where it all started for me. I realized I'm a huge Johnny-come-lately because I didn't toss my first D20 in anger until 1986. A full um, 12 years after the original version of D&D dropped. But I assure you, I got here as soon as I was able. So I met a guy, scout troop, named Daniel Varner. Dan and his younger, younger brother lived uh, pretty close to the neighborhood where we scored an apartment and later a house. We went to the same school. We were in the same scout troop. So uh, we met pretty early on in that summer as I was trying to reacclimate. The uh, kind of cruel twist of fate was that we had moved back to Round Rock, which I now consider my hometown, and uh, we lived across the highway from my old neighborhood. So while I was technically back in the city with all the old friends I'd have to leave a year before, I ended up going to a different middle school than all of them. And so I didn't see them very often. So uh, we all fed into the same high school, which by the way, at this point in time, there's now five high schools. But back then there was only good old RRHS. So I had to once again make a whole new crop of friends. Well. Daniel, we played a lot of Transformers and stuff, and there were some other new toys we were playing with, Starcom and Air Raiders during our middle school years. But Daniel invited me over to hang out with his brother and a couple other guys and said, hey, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. You want to play? Well, of course I wanted to play. 
I was still ridiculously interested in what this game was, how it was played. So I arrived at his house, and that's where the hook was set. And it was set by three elements. The one that I cannot give enough thanks to is Dan himself for suggesting that we play and pulling me into that first session. I have a very episodic memory. Um, I tend to remember things like in experiences, like what was going on at this moment, at that moment. And so I can actually see Dan's room where we were sitting. You know, I've walked past that house many times and looked at the window because I remember I was sitting right next to that window when I picked up my first D&D book that I was going to play out of for the first time. So Dan, you're out there somewhere. Thank you for getting this ball rolling. The other two things were Larry Elmore's art and to an extent Jeff Easley's and the way Frank Mincer presented the game rules. So the first book I actually had in my hand was the Blue Box Expert book. And I flipped it open and the first illustration I saw was the illustration of the cleric casting either the raise dead or speak with dead spell, depending on who you're talking about. Looks like speak with dead to me because the spirit is rising up out of the slain body. But holy crap, that image was just so cool. There were so many things going on in that picture that I wanted to ask about. Who is this guy? Why can he do this? Who was the dead guy? Was he a friend or was he an enemy? You know, what's going on in this picture? The style and detail of the artwork immediately made me a lifelong fan of Larry Elmore. So anyway, I'm looking at this and going, wow, there's some really neat stuff in here. But then Dan handed me the Red Box Players book and told me to take a look at the Choose Your Own Adventure style introduction while the other guys kibitzed and fooled with their characters a bit. And so I started on a journey that has resulted in the ampersand from that 1983 Red Box logo being tattooed on my right arm. I was hooked and never looked back. So we started a campaign and it's the kind of campaign that makes me wince today. But as a kid, it was the coolest thing ever. I mean, uh, it is what we would call Monty Hall. There was lots of treasure, more treasure than there should be. We leveled up rather quickly. We blew through all sorts of interesting places like the Isle of Dread and of course the Keep on the Borderlands. Whew, and many other modules that Daniel happened to have his hands on. So uh, we played every day that summer once we got started because <laughs> it's that blissful time in your life where you don't have any other responsibilities. School's out for the summer and your parents pay all your bills and they're pretty much happy when you're off doing something and not just sitting in your house playing Atari. Or by that time, the NES was almost out. So, uh, well, it was out, but only in certain markets, etc. You, you get the idea. So, um, we played D&D every day for hours on end. And uh, we wove these fascinating stories and, and got all these tremendous amounts of magic items and treasure. And we just tore through those books. And uh, that campaign lasted well through sixth grade and into seventh. We played at Boy Scout camping trips. We played on weekends. We played whenever we could. And that was the one and only time in my life that I got a character up into the 20s level-wise. Um, it's never happened since. And unless there is a specific high-level campaign plan, I really doubt it will, again. And that's not a sad thing. It's that I tend to prefer the zero to hero climb, you know, going from first level or zero level if you're a Dungeon Crawl Classics fan 
or a fan of Aaron Alston's treasure hunt module, and climbing up to, you know, 6th level, 7th level, maybe hitting it to ninth, so you can build your Thieves Guild or your Mage Tower. Um, so we got up into the high levels. We subdued a dragon. Only time I've ever done that in a D&D game either. And because my mage landed the final blow on the dragon with the flat of his dagger, Daniel ruled that he was going to be the dragon's master, but warned us that the dragon would look for chances to escape. Well, uh, the end of that character was when Daniel reminded us that we had to feed the dragon. And being tweens and teens in middle school, we reasoned that we could feed the dragon the same way we fed our horses. Let's make a giant leather feed bag, throw some dismembered animals in it, strap it on the dragon's head, which is what we did. Until Daniel ruled one day when he got tired of us having a dragon at our back and call that uh, the dragon had some gastrointestinal issues and uh, one acidic black dragon belch later, my mage was a puddle of former spellcaster. Our cleric could do nothing because Daniel had a uh, popular house rule at the time that acid damage could not be cured by curative magics. And so my first D&D character met his end getting into the respectable low 20s level-wise. And that was how I got acquainted with D&D. From there, it kind of spiraled out of control, really. Um, I got into the hobby in a big way. I remember my first set of dice and my first role-playing game that I bought for myself. My Aunt Carrie, who was the aunt we stayed with in Florida, had come home to visit, and she decided to take me out for my birthday and buy me something cool. Carrie had watched Robotech with me after school. It aired in the mornings, and it aired again in the afternoons. And because of the Eastern time zone, um, we had like an extra hour of quote-unquote stories before cartoons started after we got out of school. Once I was home in Texas, cartoons were already starting when we got uh, released from school, so you had to rush home to see the ones you wanted to see, or to catch the, the uh, Star Trek reruns, if that's what you're into. And I was, in a major way. But anyway, so Aunt Carrie had come to visit. She decided to take me to this magical place called King's Hobby Shop on uh, Peyton Gin and Lamar in Austin, Texas. Now, King's Hobby still exists. It's just sort of slowly getting out of the role-playing game business. Uh, they are focusing on their original focus of uh, train sets and model kits and things like that. But at that time, in 1986 and 87, King's Hobby was a frickin' wonderland of games and gaming. Walking into King's Hobby and turning left, you immediately walked into the game section, which took up fully half the store at the time. There were magazine racks and rotating vertical displays and bookshelves full of games of every description. It makes me a little sad when I walk into huge game stores today like Dragon's Lair in Austin and see that the RPG section has shrunk to one double-sided shelf and then a couple of displays dedicated to 5e and pathfinder because game stores back in the day used to be very much like king's hobby very much so anyway king's hobby i had very little preparation for the sheer breadth of games that i was about to find now, I knew about D&D, and I knew there were other games like D&D, mostly from the uh, advertisements printed inside the back cover of a couple of the books, and uh, from a care package that some of the guys my mom worked with gave me. 
which uh, we'll talk about later. There were actually two of those care packages and they formed the core of my early library. Uh, the first one contained a bunch of traveler books and uh, that clued me into science fiction role play. But I think we'll save Traveler for a future discussion. Anyway, I was totally unprepared for all the games. There was uh, just a little of everything. Starfleet Battles, Fossa Star Trek, Traveler, um, Gamma World, The Tail End of Star Frontiers. There were still some box sets there. Miniatures of all kinds. I found an air raft miniature that came with some uh, little adventure figures. Um, there was just tons of stuff. You know, aside from the miniatures that Eric's brother had had, I'd never seen gaming minis before. I knew they were a thing from having seen E.T. Um, on VHS, no less. I mean, I saw it in the original theater, but it's not like it is now where I can whip on voodoo for my daughter and throw it on three, four times a week. But the whole thing fascinated me. There were all these games besides D&D. And there were those AD&D books. So if D&D is awesome, how much more awesome is advanced D&D? So I had all this stuff to look at. Aunt Carrie asked me to choose something for my birthday. And I was having a hard time deciding what to pick. That was also my first introduction to Avalon Hill Box War Games. I had never seen so many games that weren't, you know, the kind of stuff that you see at Walmart or Toys R Us. Now, at that point in time, I had played my first game of Fortress America and kind of gotten hooked on the Milton Bradley Battlemaster series. Over the course of the next few years, we would play a lot of Access and Allies, Conquest of the Empire, Broadsides and Boarding Parties, those kind of games. Those were available at Toys R Us. So we had the opportunity to, uh, to play and pick up those games, but King's Hobby Shop had this huge breadth of, uh, of choice. Good morning. As pertains to gaming. So I was having a hard time, and then I saw it. Palladium Books Robotech role-playing game. Cover art by Kevin Long with this amazing painting of dozens of VF1 Valkyrie fighters. Which, of course, according to the role-playing game, Valkyrie wasn't really a name applied to the Veritex at that time, but whatever. So, these beautiful planes, painted in Skull One colors, and uh, moving through this asteroid field, ready to fight the Zentradi. Well, I was missing Robotech in a major way. It never aired in the Austin, Texas television market, not that I knew of. Very few people in middle school were familiar with it, unless they had moved here from someplace else. The VHS tapes that were available for rental at the time were mostly the first three episodes, one episode per tape, from Family Home Entertainment. Later, we thought we had scored the jackpot when we found the entire Macross saga at a blockbuster video. However, they were edited all to hell and gone, basically pulling out all the character development stuff and leaving most of the battles. Anyway, I was missing Robotech in a major way. So what did I do? Well, I picked that book, and Aunt Carrie was sweet enough to say, well, don't you need some dice? So I picked out a tube of Coplo dice that I was pleased and blown away to find was sort of a complete set right? It came with some extra D6s for rolling stats. It came with a 10s 10 for rolling percentages. It was everything a young gamer might need. My first set of dice were translucent red with white lettering. My uncle Jason, who was with us at the time, picked out a set of dice that was a translucent clear gray with glitter speckles in them. 
I still have a few dice from each of those sets in a special dice bag of keepsake dice. So we went home and I devoured that book. It was my first RPG that I had asked for and bought of my very own. The collection was started. So, uh, that started this huge explosion of role-playing games. My little group of friends in middle school, we didn't fit in in a whole lot of other venues, as you might imagine. We're geeks, and it's the mid to late 80s. You know, it is the age of revenge of the nerds and things like that. So, we carved out our own little social circle. D&D and other role-playing games were pretty much the core of that social circle. And we played at lunch, and we played before school, when we weren't forging passes into the lab to play with the Apple IIs. Um, a lot of what we did revolved around our gaming. For instance, we were all Star Trek fans. To the point that my friend Chris Waters and I could pretty much recite Wrath of Khan line for line, and often attempted to do so when walking between classes. Um, God, there's a lot of stuff I could say about growing up in the 80s. And since I'm hoping my sister will listen to this, and she's um, quite a few years behind me, uh, still being in high school herself. Don't ask me for that story. Um, Carly, if you're listening, I think I want to do a whole episode in the future about what it was like to grow up a geek and a gamer in the time period that I did it. So anyway, moving along. We played everything. D&D was always the staple. But we started playing Car Wars. We started playing Battletech, which is a lifelong passion for me. We started playing everything everybody or their older, older siblings had. So, good lord, we played uh, everything in the TSR stable with the exception of Boot Hill, which, for whatever reason, never grabbed us much. I've played it since, but not in those first glory days. We played a lot of Marvel superheroes. The yellow box and later the advanced box. Um, Traveler was very popular. Robotech was very popular. Cyberpunk, the original 2013 box set. Oh, man, that hit us where we lived. And uh, one of the reasons that that was so awesome is it was so unheroic. Um, you know, even in the early Battletech stuff, you know, which, again, I'll try to cover in a future episode, even the early Battletech stuff talked about mercenaries, guns for hire, stuff like that. But, um, you know, Cyberpunk 2013 was pretty clearly gray area. You, you weren't heroic. You weren't going out to save the kingdom. You were going out to save your own ass and make some money. And so that was, that was very popular with us. Um, as we moved into high school, we got into military-themed games because we all joined the Marine Corps JROTC. So we played a lot of Twilight 2000. We played a little Moro Project. We, uh, we played a lot of, um, oh, why is my brain farting? Recon by Palladium Books. In fact, the age was such that both our instructors, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph John Salvati and Sergeant Major Joe Davis, were both Vietnam vets. They had both done some time in the shit, as it were. And so uh, Colonel Salvati specifically served as kind of a technical advisor for us. Sergeant Major Davis thought our games were rather silly and kind of ignored us. But um, it wasn't until many years later that I found out that Colonel Salvati was sort of a minor figure in the Marine Corps pantheon uh, from the Battle of Huey. Whew, it was kind of cool to see my uh, former teacher written up in the rule books, uh, or in the history books, and then realize that, holy crap, you know, the old dude who was usually funny but sometimes got ridiculously pissed off with the big old Popeye arms was uh, 
you know, involved in some things that were interesting and important enough to write up in a history book. So that was neat to find out. So um, we played a lot of those kind of games. Battletech became more and more important as time went on. AD&D 2nd Edition dropped in 1989, the year I started high school. So we are the last graduating class to say we went to high school in the 80s. Um, so 2nd Edition was pretty cool. We had played some 1st Edition AD&D for quite a while by then. And we were rather enamored of Oriental Adventures, though we never actually played it straight. What would happen is we'd play a standard Western D&D campaign, and someone would inevitably ask to play a samurai or a ninja. I noticed that no one ever really met, uh, messed with the uh, OA races like Spirit Folk and Korobokuru and Hinga Yokai. And no one really messed with the variants on the spellcasting classes, the Shukenja and the Wujin and the Sohei. It was, or even the Bushi, the basic fighter. No, no. It was all about samurai and ninja. So uh, we also loved the spread of Asian weapons that were in the book, all of the artwork. It's another reason we all flipped through Unearthed Arcana so many times was to look at Gary Gygax's, like, master's thesis treaties on pole arms. So, uh, by that time we had gotten into Palladium's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. So there was a whole lot of back and forth borrowing weapons and gear from one game to the other. The rules were close enough that we figured the weapon damages were eh, gonna work. So, uh, our gaming developed. We got into more and more stuff. And we started to morph our gaming away from the hacky slashy and towards the story. When Vampire the Masquerade dropped my junior year, we found out two things about it. One, it was more about story than combat. If you read the book and took it in the way that the authors apparently meant it. And two, for the first time, we could attract girls to the game. Now, we'd had one or two female D&D players, and uh, one particularly memorable girl that I dated in high school was into Shadowrun once we started playing it. Um, but Vampire was the game that got the attention of the female of the species. So, uh, anyway, there were lots of games coming out during that time, and uh, second edition was something that uh, we really enjoyed because, love it or hate it, it's written in a much more straightforward manner than first edition. It doesn't tend to meander. You don't have to flip it back and forth to find all the esoteric little parts of a rule. Um, especially initiative. I mentioned it before, but that's because it's a problem. Especially if you want to factor in the only surprised on a one. Surprised on a one or a two. When you get a surprise round, it's one segment, but it's really a whole round. Um, I had to download a PDF called Addict, the AD&D initiative tool, to help me figure all that stuff out once and for all. So, moving right along. Second edition also grabbed me not only for the straightforward rules and production values, it was the first RPG books we had seen that were full color in the interior. Some games had color plates, MechWarrior 1st Edition, Call of Cthulhu, um, things like that. But we had never seen an entire book printed in color. Now, this was kind of a trick, because the predominant color other than black was blue. Some of the illustrations were blue and white rather than black and white, but there were color illustrations for throughout. Most notably, uh, the Jeff Easley cover, and the piece of artwork that I will forevermore associate with D&D only a tiny half notch below the cover of Redbox. And that is um, the piece that I bought a print of and had Larry Elmore sign, among others. The uh, wonderful illustration from the Player's Handbook of 2nd Edition that has the little dragon hanging up by its neck 
being dead, dead, dead. And a group of adventurers looking ridiculously proud of themselves for having slain the fearsome beast. I found out later, talking to Mr. Elmore at a, uh, well, North Texas RPG con, which I will certainly talk about later. Um, North Texas RPG con, I asked him about that picture, and he told me this great story that uh, living where he lives, there's a lot of hunters. They like to tell a lot of hunting stories. And so uh, that picture is sort of him good-naturedly poking fun at these hunters and how they come home and tell these stories about their mighty kills when they're probably exaggerating just a bit. So um, there you go. But yes, that piece of artwork has stuck with me for many, many, many years. Um, AD&D 2E presented us this whole new way to D&D that really wasn't all that new. A lot of the rules are things we've been doing forever anyway. But it was all codified in these pretty new books that we went and bought at Hastings. R.I.P. Hastings. Because now, there was a place most of us in the old neighborhood could walk to to buy our RPG materials and dice and uh, cassettes and very slowly CDs. Hastings carried a lot of stuff. Until they went out of production, the local Hastings in Round Rock was never without the five box sets. Basic through Immortals. They always had a copy of Thieves World. They always had a copy of Harpoon, one of the games that uh, I actually referenced repeatedly in college when I was working on my military history degrees, bachelor's and later master's, because uh, I tended to focus on the concept of games as a military teaching tool. That's what my thesis was over. So Harpoon came up several times. I was pleased to find out from the foreword by Tom Clancy that Clancy had actually used the game while he was writing Hunt for Red October. So, uh, used it to simulate some of his sea action to make sure he got his back straight. So, uh, boy, we were into a lot of games. It's, it's hard for me to try to remember them all because I want to give due credit to every single game and the effect it had on me as a young gamer because uh, they all had a pretty profound and amazing effect. Like, that brings me to talking about how Clancy used Harpoon. Um, Star Wars. D6 Star Wars, West End Games, 1987 and forward. Um, Ghostbusters and Star Wars were two favorites of mine, mostly because I loved the movies, but also because the games were ridiculously easy to teach and very well written. They also only used Monopoly dice, the good old D6, so they weren't scary to those friends who might not be gamers that you're trying to get to sit down and try the hobby. The reason that that memory pops to mind at this particular point is that uh, that was what we used to call the dark times. And I actually heard that phrase thrown out watching the toys that made us talking about Star Wars. And that was the period post-Return of the Jedi when the droids and Ewoks cartoons wrapped up and all of a sudden there was no Star Wars. No books. Um, the toy lines kind of withered on the vine. Although the original power of the horse line was pretty awesome. Um, but Star Wars was kind of gone. So the role-playing game came out and offered all of this amazing stuff for the Star Wars universe. This included concepts, characters, and vehicles based on the original Ralph McQuarrie artwork of, uh, you know, the production artwork. For instance, many of the swoops and speeder bikes that were included in the early products were early Macquarie drawings of what became the speeder bike that we saw in uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, 
a lot of the ship designs, alien designs, all that stuff ended up in the role-playing game. This is where, for the first time, we started getting things like the Millennium Falcon is a Corellian Engineering Corporation YT-1300 light freighter. Han Solo's pistol is a Blastec DL-44. Luke's was a Blastec DL-18. Um, the uh, XP-38 Landspeeder, you know, things like that all showed up. Now, the reason, again, that this comes to mind now is that when George Lucas decided it was time to bring the franchise out of his imposed rest, they contacted an author named Timothy Zahn and said, hey, we want to see if there's some life left in Star Wars. Will you write books that pick up where the films left off? And when he agreed, they delivered to him a box full of the West End Games role-playing games. And so uh, Zahn used those books the same way Clancy used the harpoon material. Basically, he treated those books as if they were historically and technically accurate. Basically, the Jane's fighting ships, etc., of Star Wars. All of the things that the writers at West End had come up with, like the Imperial Ubiquitrate, and, uh, you know, things like that. All of that was treated as canon by Zahn. And some of the things that Star Wars fans are familiar with now all started in those books. The Juggernaut that we see in the prequels was actually a pre-production sketch of an AT-AT. The uh, concepts of some of the Force powers started in the role-playing game, ended up in the movie. The uh, Imperial Interdictor Cruiser. The Interdictor was something that was invented in the role-playing game and showed up in the Star Wars Rebels TV series because it's a great plot device for pinning the player characters where they're at so that uh, they don't just hyperdrive out of there. But all these things became canon uh, because Zahn wrote them into the novels and even when the EU was abolished to be uh, called the Legends series, so much of it has appeared on screen. For instance, mild, mild spoiler alert, um, the Millennium Falcon is referred to on screen as a YT-1300 freighter in the new film Solo. And uh, Corellian Engineering Corporation is mentioned. The fact that Han is Corellian is confirmed on screen. And the funny part is we as fans take all of that for granted. But it's never actually been said on screen before. Um, so there was a lot of things that have been come from the games and been canonized by the films. So Star Wars, that was a huge influence on us. It brought back our love of the films, which by that time existed on VHS and we could watch them whenever we wanted. And uh, brought us back to that galaxy far, far away. Star Wars in many ways was space fantasy D&D in that you tended to be good guys. In fact, uh, the rules of that game reinforced that idea with the whole concept of dark side points. I've got some good friends that are in the middle of a D6 campaign right now, and one of their characters just fell to the dark side using those mechanics from 1987. So, uh, let's see. We've got a few more minutes on this three-mile journey for me to finish, you know, wrap up with my early years of gaming. I think I really need to mention Battletech in a little more detail. Because uh, if I name the top five games that have affected me over the years, that is definitely one of them. Um, one of the top games. I mean, D&D obviously has to go in the number one spot. If it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have gotten into tabletop gaming. But Battletech's up there. Um, so I spotted Battletech on the shelf at, uh, it was either a Walden Books or a B. Dalton back in the day when there was one of those in each mall, sometimes one of each on opposite ends of the mall competing with each other for your book pleasure. 
the artwork immediately caught me. Partially because it was awesome, and partially because it was pretty obviously an Excalibur Destroid from Robotech. And I thought, hey, maybe this is a supplement for Robotech. Well, after purchasing my first copy and grabbing a copy of Technical Readout 3025, which is still one of my favorite, just let's read a gaming book books, it dawned on me this was a completely separate universe, not related to Robotech at all. Um, obviously, a lot of the mechs were direct copies, and I wouldn't have the answer to why that was a thing for years. The internet didn't really exist yet, but hey, who cares? The miniatures are awesome. But I never had many of the miniatures. I used the cardboard standees in the box a lot. But flipping it over and seeing that awesome Steve Venters illustration of the mechs fighting in the, the uh, swamp, and then all the little cards around the edge of the illustration showing all of the mechs, I was like, wow, I gotta check this game out. So I got into it for the giant robots. But here's the part that starts to uh, play to my story and character development bones. I open up that little white rule book, the one with the shadow hawk on the front, or if you prefer the Dugram, if you want to go back to the original source material. Um, I opened up that book, started reading the rules. Anyone familiar with that book knows there are a copious number of sidebars. So I started reading the sidebars. The quote by historian Tamar Chandrasekhar about how the Dark Age happened and what the state of the successor lords are. Mechs can't be built. Ships are artifacts from centuries ago. All of that painted this amazing picture in my head. Then a little bit later, I started reading the descriptions of the great houses. Uh, Liao, Davian, Merrick, Corita, and most especially, Steiner. The House of Steiner became the flag under which my characters have fought for the last 35 years. Um, and uh, even though they had already decided that Melissa Steiner was going to get married off to Hans Davian, I figured my character would find some way to woo the Archon designate. And then I read the Warrior Trilogy and got really, really upset. But anyway, the, the story... The concepts behind Battletech were really interesting to me. These great houses and the technological backslide and all that. So the next time I was at King's Hobby, I realized there are these big books with the house logos on them. I believe, if I recall correctly, Steiner was the very first one to hit the, hit the shelves. So I picked up the House Steiner book and was completely floored when I got home and started reading and realized it was 184 pages of pure fluff. What we would now call fluff. Um, it was history, religion, um, social customs, how people dressed, how the government is structured, how the military is structured, who the nobles are that run the show, and why most of them can't be trusted. There wasn't a game rule in the whole damn book. It was all about the world. And so over the years, I have collected all of those books, including owning a copy of the much sought after Star League book, which I had no idea at the time how much, uh, how difficult it would be to get these days and how much people would pay for it. Whew. But uh, the thing that pulled me into Battletech was the art. The thing that kept me there was the world building. And, uh, so one of the early games I picked up, I think I bought it my eighth grade year, was the MechWarrior RPG. Um, once again, talking about art. The cover art by Jim Holloway on first edition MechWarrior is simply awesome. It's a pilot uh, in a Warhammer blowing the crap out of a rifleman. And even Jordan Weissman himself in the forward to the Shrapnel Anthology, says to him, that artwork is Battletech. So, uh, you know, the art was very, very, very uh, cool. Um, the Dave Dietrich artwork of all of the characters and their uniforms and stuff. 
I am fortunate enough to own four of the originals of those Dave Dietrich color plates. I have no idea where the other four are, but I bought the four that I own off of a uh, former FASA employee. Hi, Mike. And had them framed because holy shit. Um, 